And immediately when I say Hebrews chapter 11, most of you know exactly what this chapter is all about. This chapter is about what the whole world is against right now. This is the opposite of what we're finding all over the world today. You say, what are you talking about? Well, this is the chapter of faith. It's the great hall of faith, we call it. And uh, you've heard of the great hall of fame. This is the hall of faith. And in this chapter, God has placed for our memory, men and women who have lived lives of great faith. And I want to, with God's help this evening, to look at this chapter and trust it will encourage us in this time in which we're living. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 32 down to the end of the chapter. Hebrews 11 beginning in verse number 32. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. And may God add his blessing. We know that he will add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word this evening. Now you know the first part of this chapter deals specifically by name with men and women who were used greatly of God and did something that required faith. But when we come to the end of the chapter, we are given as if the writer of Hebrews is running out of time, as if he's saying, I could go on with the list of men and women who God used because they had great faith, and he sort of wraps it all up, and he does it with two types of faith. He talks about the kind of faith that stopped the mouths of lions, and the type of faith that subdued kingdoms, but he also talks about the kind of faith that is required to be tortured. He talks about the kind of faith that is required to be afflicted and tormented, cut in half. Both, these all, that's verse 39, 
have obtained a good report. And the key to that, the key to obtaining a good report, I'm going to talk about that briefly. You've heard me talk about it before at the end. But you do not get a report until the end. Well, these all got a good report at the end only by one way. There's only one path, only one way to get a good report before God, and that is through faith. Now, can I tell you something? We are living in a world of fear right now. We are living in a day, an age, a generation, a point in history of worldwide fear. And fear is the opposite of faith. And so if you and I are ever going to obtain a good report, it must be done through faith, not fear. So many of us spend so much time watching the news. And by the way, uh, that's exactly what a lot of people want you to do is, is watch Facebook and, and Twitter and the news and the internet nonstop all day long because you can't get out, you can't do anything else. And in all of that, fear is mounting and rising. And with each new announcement and with each uh, new, new news report, fear. But the opposite of fear is how we're expected to live. Faith. The Christian life is a faith life. That's not, not something new. That has always been the case. From the time that God chose Abraham to begin a new nation, the nation of Israel, he called Abraham to go out by faith. From the time that God called Noah to build an ark, it was done by faith. And so each step of humanity, each step with God's people, the relationship with God has always required faith. It's not any different today, or at least it shouldn't be. You and I cannot live the life we should live apart from faith. Now let me remind you, faith is not the object. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. Faith is not the goal. Some people make faith the goal. Jesus is the goal. Faith in Christ, the Lord, is our goal. It's not faith that does the mighty work of God. It's through faith that God does his mighty work in us. I love what Jesus said in John chapter 15. You know the passage, I am the vine. My father is the husband. You are the branches. He goes on and says, without me, ye can do nothing. This is the great battle in the world, it's the great battle in your heart and mind today. Will it be my way or will it be God's way? I, I love what the psalmist writes. He tells us God's way is perfect. And he also teaches us that our way can be made perfect as we yield to God's way. And can I tell you, dying to self is essential in serving and following God. It's essential in living by faith. Because living by faith is completely contrary to the flesh. The flesh wants to know security and safety. The flesh wants to know everything's okay. We don't want to make a move. We won't, don't want to do anything unless we know everything's going to be lined up, sorted out, and we're safe. That's why so many people are, are very quick to hand over their rights and liberties. 
all in the name of safety. Because we would rather be safe than live by faith. The Lord gets the most glory when we live our lives dead to self, living by faith. You remember what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2? For I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Faith. And it's not even ours. It's that precious gift that he's given us of his faith. You remember what the man said one time? Jesus said, if thou believest, he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. I need, I need you, Lord, to give me more faith. Increase my faith. Luke chapter 17 and verse number 5. Increase our faith, they cried. Have you ever prayed that prayer before? Very often we want our abilities to be increased. We want our, our, our resources to be increased. We want our training and our knowledge to be increased. But have you ever prayed, Lord, increase my faith? Have you ever prayed that prayer? Increase my faith. There is no substitute for faith. Faith brings eternity near. It unveils that which cannot be seen. By the way, that which cannot be seen is completely hidden to the world, isn't it? It's interesting. uh, People are running around Uh, like madmen all over the world. And if we're not careful, Christians, we follow suit. Let me remind you, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. What we're battling with today is is far bigger and far, it's far deeper than a virus. What we're battling with today in the world is far more serious than any illness, far more serious than any governmental threat. What we battle with in the world today is something deeply spiritual. And it's faith that opens our eyes to that. We've got to be people of faith. At the end of Hebrews chapter 11, the verses we've just read, we have a summary. As if, I mentioned a moment ago, as if the author is rushing, rushing out of time, uh, rushing to get to this one point. He says, time would fail me. That's what he says there in in, uh, verse number 32. And what shall I more say? For time would fail me to tell. I can't take the time to cover it all. The list is not necessarily a chronological list that we find in this text. And and there are some people left out for a reason. Uh, And it's interesting. uh, We oftentimes think, well, I would have put such a one in there. But it's it's not our word. It's God's word. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart, doesn't he? And so he's put in this list exactly who we need to have in here. And oftentimes, if we're not careful, we admire somebody for what they look like or how they sound, their winsomeness, their charisma, their articulation. But when God looks, God is looking for one thing, confidence in God. It's interesting. I've been thinking a lot. I was talking with Pastor Bassett. Today on the phone, and we quoted that little quote from E.M. Bounds. E.M. Bounds says the church is looking for better, me- uh, better methods, but God is looking for better men. The church is looking for better machinery and this better programs, but God is looking for men who would just trust Him, have faith in Him, confidence, completely 
utterly dependent upon God. I want you to notice with me a couple of things in our text. The very first lot that he talks about here is, is the, are these, uh, five of these six anyways are judges. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets. Look at, the, look at verse 33. Who these, who through faith subdued kingdoms. Now I want you to think for just a moment. Because we're living in a day and age when there is, as there has always been, there is a spiritual kingdom alive and at work today. And we oftentimes, because of what is around us, get distracted from the spiritual because of the physical, because of the material. And it's always been this way. Satan is very clever. He'll distract us with materialism whether it be with cars and homes and watches and clothes, shoes and that kind of a thing, or he'll, he'll or distract us with the material world, with, with life itself. You remember Jesus' parable of the seed and the sower? The seed falls on four different kinds of ground. Do you remember that? Some fell by the wayside like a pathway, and the birds came and snatched it away. Some fell on the, on the stony soil, a very shallow layer of dirt on the, on the top, and the, and the seed sprouted out quickly, and the sun scorched it, and it quickly withered away. But the third kind of a soil was the seed fell amongst thorns. Do you remember that? And the thorns, as they grew together, as the gospel seed and the thorns grew together, the thorns choked out the seed. And Jesus explained that the thorns were this, the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world. The cares of life. Going to school and going to work and how I'm going to pay my bills and cars and, and uh, home improvement projects and, and uh, you know, my hair's falling out and maybe I should get a hair implants and, and all, these, all these kinds of things. The busyness, the normality of life. And can I tell you, Satan is very clever. But these six are listed in verse 32. Five of those six are judges and one king. Five judges and one king. And he sums, sums together the prophets, includes that in them, and then speaks about their exploits through faith. They subdued kingdoms. Now I want you to think for just a moment with me. What God could accomplish through the life of one submissive person? I believe it was D.L. Moody who was listening to that great preacher in Brighton, Mr. Varley, there along the coast of England. Moody was a young man as he listened to the crowds. Amongst the crowds, he listened to the preaching of that man. The man said, the world has never seen what God could do with one person that was entirely, wholeheartedly committed to him. D.L. Moody prayed to God and said, by the grace of God, I'll be that one person. Years went by. You know the story. D.L. Moody became a world-known, renowned evangelist here in this country and in America, made friends with F.B. Meyer and influenced his life and ministry there at Melbourne Hall and, and on and on the list goes. Preached at Spurgeon's Tabernacle. Revival came. At the end of D.L. Moody's life, he, shortly before he passed, he remembered those words. He remembered that prayer. Lord, by the grace of God, I'll be that one man that the world has not yet seen. Upon dying, D.L. Moody said, the world has still yet to see what could be done. 
through one man totally yielded to him. Now I wonder tonight, maybe you could be that one man or woman completely yielded to God. We face challenges every day, no doubt about it. And sometimes the challenges we face are unbearable. Sometimes the burdens we carry almost, are almost crushing. And so God draws attention to these judges who under great oppression and under great oppression of foreign powers stood up and were used greatly by God. And I want to encourage you tonight. We couldn't possibly look at all of these, but we'll look here in just a moment. But if you can remember with me, it was because of Israel's sinfulness that God calls them over and over again to be brought beneath captivity of an alien people. And I don't mean aliens from space. You, know, you read that little word in there and women uh, you, you think, oh, oh boy, uh, the Bible talks about aliens. Well, it's talking, that word literally means strangers, other strange nations. They were brought under captivity of the Assyrians, brought under captivity of the Babylonians. And the list goes on. Egyptians. It was all because of Israel's sinfulness. And I can't help but wonder, oftentimes we pass through difficult times because of our sinfulness. I'm reading a very interesting book right now, an excellent book right now. I encourage you to get a hold of it if you can. It's called Prayer in the Coming Revival by Andrew Murray. And the chapter I've just read yesterday states, we will never get any further with our walk with God until we confess that our lack of prayer is sin. Our lack of communion with God is sin. Unless we acknowledge that, we're never going to be any different. We'll never be revived, as it were. We'll never be used of God of any significant in any significant way until we recognize our greatest failure is in our walk with God. And so Israel will be brought into captivity until they would recognize they need their God. And God would raise up a judge, oftentimes a military chieftain, someone that would deliver them. And it wasn't in their military ability. It wasn't in their courage. It wasn't in their war tactics that God delivered them. God said, I'll bless them, I'll use them to deliver them from kingdoms. They subdued kingdoms because they were people of faith. That's why. Do you get it? If you and I want to subdue kingdoms, if you and I want to make a difference in the country that we're living, in the present circumstances that we're living, it's not through military might or power. It's through faith in God. And part of the reason there aren't any men rising to leadership in the day in which we live is because men are trying in their own efforts, in their own strength, to fight what we're facing instead of having faith in God. I know personally the greatest hindrance in my own life is me. I can't blame it on anybody else. And I know that if I could only spend a little more time with God, my faith would be increased and I would be able to lead with more clarity, more vision, more boldness. This is the one thing we're missing. I want to remind you, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But yet many people think the battle is against flesh and blood. 
It's principalities, isn't it? Principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. And if you can't see spiritual wickedness in high places, it's time to wake up. We battle on a daily basis with the kingdom of the devil. He's the prince and power of the air. And there's only one shield that quenches all of his fiery darts. There's only one way to be protected from his darts of discouragement and depression and fear and doubt. There's only one way, only one shield God has given us, and that is the shield of faith. Faith. Through faith they subdued kingdoms. Notice, through faith they wrought righteousness, obtained promises. Look at verse number 34. Pardon me, verse 33. Wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. I want you to think about that for a moment. Every time I read that, there are certain people that come to mind, aren't there? When I read, they stopped the mouths of lions. Who comes to mind? Well, I think about David. You remember when David faced Goliath? He said to Saul, don't worry. Already God delivered me out of the mouth of a lion and the mouth of a bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be the very same. And he whooped him by faith. Delivered out of the mouths of lions. I think about Samson. You remember that? On his way there and attacked by a lion along the way and ripped him to pieces. It wasn't because Samson was some big hawk of a man. It was because the power of God rested upon him. And I cannot help but think of Daniel. Now Daniel didn't rip the, the lions to pieces. No, I, can, I, I imagine Dan, Daniel to be a cool, calm, spirited man. Standing firm with deep integrity. Cast into the lions then. He probably walked into the lions then. And the very next morning, there he sat. He had named them all by name by that time. Braided their manes. Had had a good evening together. Probably slept upon the, the comf comf comfort of their back. Faith. Faith. What about quench the violence of fire? I can't help but think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We looked at them just last week. A couple of weeks ago. Quench the violence of fire. It doesn't mean they got a bucket of water and, 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 threw, and, and threw out the water. And when it says that they stopped the mouths of lions, it doesn't mean that God took the lions away. It meant they faced the lions, defeated the lions, and came out victorious. When they, when they quenched the fire, it doesn't mean that God poured water from heaven and stopped the fire. He took them through the fire, and they went through unharmed. You see, our problem today is we want God to take all the problems away. That's not faith. Faith says, okay, God, I know you're going to protect me through this fire. I know you're going to help me through this fire. God uses, think about these stories that we read in, in the pages of Scripture of all of these things. God uses small people, little people, nobodies. I think about him putting together, God in his wisdom, putting together ragtag groups of men to turn to flight entire armies. 
Think about David and Goliath. One little teenage lad conquered an entire Philistine army. Had them all turning and running. When the rest of the army of the Israelites sat up on a hillside frightened to death. One teenage boy brave enough to say, is there not a cause? While the rest of you sit up there frightened to death, is there not a cause to stand up and face this giant? Is there not a cause? Think about it. The reason God used David was not because of his stone-throwing ability. And a lot of people might want to put it down to that. Well, David, you know, out in, the, out in the wilderness watching the sheep, had a lot of time to practice his slingshot. No, 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 no. God used David because he had faith. Because he was a man after God's own heart. He was a sweet psalmist of Israel. The Lord shows us these people, and then he uncovers the secret to God's blessing upon their life through faith. Now, I believe wholeheartedly that we as God's people ought to be equipped and trained, no doubt about it. But in God's work, nobody has ever been equipped to serve God simply only by education alone. And we're living in a day when people who are training for the ministry want to have their nose in a theological book for their entire lives while people are dying and going to hell. No, no, no. If a man is not a man of faith, he's not a man of God. Kingdoms can never be subdued by the power of men. We cannot look at all these people possibly in our text tonight, but let's look at a couple of them. Go with me to Judges chapter 21 just quickly tonight. Judges chapter 20. Go to Judges chapter 6. But the very last verse of Judges tells us the sort of condition that the judges were laboring under. And let me read it for you while you're turning to Judges chapter 6. Uh, uh, we find in verse number 25 of, of chapter 21, In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That was where, that was the condition of the world that these judges ministered in. There wasn't a king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Well, I understand there's a queen in England, but still every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes. There was no spiritual leader in Israel. And so everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. Go with me to Judges chapter 6, if you would, please. And look at verse number 12 and 13. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him, this is Gideon, and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Now can I tell you, there's something that is common amongst all men of God throughout the pages of Scripture and throughout the pages of history. Here's what it is. The Lord is with thee. Can I ask you a question tonight? Do you believe and feel and sense that the Lord is with you? These men knew that God was with them in a way that other men didn't know. In the very next verse, Gideon said unto him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of? Saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of Midianites. See what happened? The scripture said, the Lord is with thee, O mighty man of valor. He said, I'm not a man of valor. And I don't, I don't even know if God's with me. And God went through a process of convincing him 
that he was indeed with him. He was indeed. Gideon's, if you remember, get, get together an army. You remember that? Get together an army, Gideon. There he goes, thousands of them. And what did God tell him to do? I want you to get as many people as you can, and then you'll be able to win this battle. No, 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 no. He began to whittle them down until he had 600 men. But here's the key. Go in this thy might. Now Gideon recognized something. He recognized he had no might. He recognized he had no power. He recognized his own helplessness, insufficiency, and God chose a man who knew he was utterly insufficient, utterly helpless, so that that man would have to depend upon God. Somebody asked Hudson Taylor one time, well, why is it that God chose you to reach China, all of China? He said, well, God was looking for a long time. He couldn't find somebody weak enough and small enough until he found me. Now that's the right mentality. It's not, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I, I was born, I'm a, mighty, I'm a mighty warrior. No, 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 no. Like Gideon. I can't do this. You've got the wrong, you've got the wrong one. Everywhere we look, people are saying, if our church could, when our church just gets a little bit stronger, and when we get out of this lockdown, and then we can get back at it together, when we have more people, and then we can match up our might against the world's might. But can I tell you something? If we're ever going to subdue kingdoms, God's not going to wait until we build our own kingdom. God wants to use some individual, some little ragtag little church, some little group of believers who will just trust him, have faith in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the apostle Paul puts it just right. You know the verses, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 and 10. Let me read them for you. He says this, and he said unto me, God said unto Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in what? Weakness. That sounds counterproductive, doesn't it? Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, this is the opposite way of thinking of most humanity today. He goes on. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, sicknesses, weaknesses, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. He said, put me in the worst case possible. I'd rather you strip it all away from me. I'd rather you take all my money and all my clothes and all that I have and put me, make me as sick as possible because then I have to trust in God. And then I know it's nothing of me, not an ounce of strength of my own body, nothing of me. And every once in a while God takes people through that valley where he strips them of everything strong that they thought they once had. And God said to Gideon go in your strength because you'll have to depend upon my might. When you go in this thy might you, you have to trust God to get the job done. We say well when we when we get all the right resources together, then we'll, then we'll get the job done. 
Then we'll do great for God. Can't, can't wait for all this is over because then we're going to do some great things. When all this is over, when they let us get back together, we're going to tackle this world. No, no, no. Why don't we do it now? Not when it all is over, we can get back together. No, no. Now. You see, Satan is, Satan's fine with you and I making plans about what we're going to do when this is all over as long as we don't do anything now. Satan is more than happy for us to say, later, tomorrow, uh, then, then, then when, we, when we get it all sorted out, then. No, no, no. What are we going to do now? What are we going to do today? We already have a great God. We're not waiting for this to be over until we have access to that great God. We have just as much access now. In fact, you might have more access to that great God today than you'll have if you wait until it's over. He's got everything we need. You want to wait for the resources? Is that what it is? You want an army that's trained and equipped? God says no. Go in this thy might. Get to the place where you need God and God alone. Get to the place when you have to depend upon God. And then he'll be with you. You want to know why you don't feel his presence? Because you're so self-sufficient. You want to know why we don't feel the presence of God? Because we don't need him. But you get to rock bottom or you get to that place where you know you need him. Then you'll sense his presence. Why would he give us his presence when we go on living as if we don't need him? That's the difference. The faith life is exactly the opposite of the forced life. You will either live by force or by faith. You will either muscle your way through life trying to make everything happen or you will follow God. But you can't have it both ways. There's only one way. Fathers and mothers, God's going to teach us, God willing, He's going to teach us that we don't overpower our children. God overpowers me. And then I trust Him to lead me in my rearing of my children. But every parent has to learn that. He teaches this to pastors. Churches often think when they're looking for a pastor that we want somebody built like an Olympic athlete, a Rhodes Scholar, a spiritual giant, dressed by a fashion coordinator, world-class communicator, then we'll be okay. They want to spit, shine, and polish the flesh as much as possible. But God is looking for a man of faith. A man who's worried more about the inward appearance than the outward appearance. The man of faith will be in touch with God and he'll help others to be in touch with God. He will make us aware of God and not himself. Just like when a little story says the American delegation came to London to visit some churches. In the morning he went to hear Joseph Parker the great pulpiteer at the city temple in London. When he left that service in the morning, he said, wow, what a preacher. That evening, he went to hear Mr. Spurgeon. When he left, he said, wow, what a savior. Mr. Spurgeon made the people aware of God. The faith life makes people aware of God. Now, let me ask you tonight, what about you? 
You see, when God says to Gideon, go in this thy might, he says, oh, hold on a moment, I'm a nobody. I don't have any might. I'm the poorest in my family. He actually argues with God. I'm the poorest in my family. And God says, exactly. Because you cannot do it unless I go with you. And God used him. God used him. James chapter, uh, Judges chapter 4, you find another example of Barak. We, we won't go there at the moment. But again, faith. I want you to notice again in our text in Hebrews chapter number 11, not only did they subdue kingdoms, but they, through faith, they, the second half of this, I love what it says, they, they subdued kingdoms and wrought righteousness. But, in verse 35, whom women received to life again and others were tortured. So you have one who did great things through faith, subdued kingdoms. And then you have another half who suffered through faith. And you and I have got to be willing to do both. You, can't, you cannot only accept the faith life if you know you're going to subdue kingdoms. You cannot... Say to God, okay, God, I'll walk by faith just as long as you stop, all those mouth of the, uh, stop the mouths of the lions. Just as long as I don't go to prison. No, no, no. You've got to be willing. Whatever, way, whatever outcome may come, you've got to be willing to walk that walk of faith. And there are many people suffering in the world today. Many of God's people. But there are a lot of people who are suffering who are not suffering because of faith. But God gives us a list of those who are suffering because of faith. I love reading of Christian heritage and history. And I'm challenged by the story of the martyrs. If you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, I encourage you to do so. If you've never read Eusebius, I encourage you to do so. You read about parents burned at the stake for teaching their children the Ten Commandments in the Lord's Prayer. Can you imagine? There are people today who are being tortured and killed for their faith in Christ. And if we live long enough, we'll see that visit our own shores. And on Judgment Day, can you imagine? On Judgment Day, we'll stand beside these people who lay down their lives. We'll hear them cry, worthy is the Lamb. And we'll be standing in shame because we murmur and grumble and complain over a lockdown. And there are people who are tortured for their faith. We don't even want to be inconvenienced, do we? Much less suffer. We throw in the towel and quit. There are some people today who were faithful to the Lord up until this happened. And now because they can't go to a chapel building, they've thrown in the towel. They've quit over nothing. Some quit before the lockdown ever took place. Some who once came and were faithful threw in the towel a long time ago because somebody said something to offend them. Because nobody appreciates them. And while we whine and murmur and complain over all of this nonsense, there are people who have nothing and are being tortured for their faith. While we whine and complain about how we can't get the right colored Bible or the right textured Bible, there are millions who've never owned a Bible. We've got plenty of them on the shelf, don't we? Through faith, they suffer. 
for righteousness' sake. I'm ashamed of myself sometimes. All the complaining over silliness. Verse 35 to 36 in our text, the scriptures say women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonments. They all, I love what verse 37, that they might obtain a better resurrection. They were willing to do that so that when they were resurrected on that final day, it would be a better resurrection for them. You see, they lived with eternity in view. You and I are too busy living for today and too worried about our pension and, and our bank account and our savings account. They thought about resurrection day. They wanted a better resurrection because when they stood before the Lord, it will be a joyful resurrection because of their faithfulness to him. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 7, let me read it for you. Lovely little Little verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse, verse number 7. At the trial, verse 6, wherein we greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory. When? At the appearing of Jesus Christ, that your faith, that your faith might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. It's your faith that's much more precious than gold. But the trial is not precious. It's the outcome of the trial that's precious. That's why Paul said, okay, bring it on. Because I know through those trials, I, I'm refined. I'm refined. You want a better resurrection? Then endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Verse number 37, it says they were sawn asunder. Many believe specifically speaking of Isaiah the prophet. Cut in half. James and John beheaded. James, the brother of John, beheaded. Destitute, tormented, afflicted. I love what it says here. Of whom the world is not worthy. You find over and over in the New Testament a very encouraging word, especially in these books, Hebrew and, and, and Peter's letters, you find the word elect. And sometimes, of course, referring, as some would say, to the nation of Israel and speaking directly to those tribes, but oh, speaking about God's people, because God's people, especially then, were rejected by the whole world. They were despised. They were rejected, tempted slain with the sword, wandered in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. And although the world rejected them, they were chosen by God, accepted in the beloved. Let me encourage you. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. But to be rejected of the world is to be identified with the Savior. To be rejected it's not a bad thing. Jesus said, if the world hates you, don't be too surprised. Because it hated me. It hated me. And I love, in verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. Can I tell you, would you look here for a moment? Let me tell you a big problem with many of us today. The problem is, the world is worthy of us. And we're worthy of the world. 
But here are people of whom the world was not worthy. Too good. Because they were men and women of faith. They didn't live a worldly life. Didn't fit in with the world. The world didn't want them. I like what, I like what Paul said. Paul said, I'm crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. You've got to have it both. It's not just I am crucified. I'm crucifying I'm my flesh to the world. I want nothing to do with it. No, no, no. You've got to get to the point where you live such a life that you not only despise the world and things that are in the world, but that same world despises you because it knows you will never go along with their system. That's where we need to be. That's where we need to get. They had no home. Wandering, it says. Think about that. Stoned, they were sawn asunder, tempted, slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute. Why? Because they didn't have a home. This world wasn't their home. They were suffering for righteousness' sake. And Peter tells us again in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 12 to 14. Look at it there with me if you, if you can. Look what he says. 1 Peter 4, verse number 12. Beloved. That's encouraging. That's that same word, that same, uh, same tone when speaking to God's people. Beloved. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings that when his glory shall be revealed ye may be glad also with exceeding joy if ye be reproached for the name of Christ. Happy are ye for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of but on your part, he is glorified. That's what we need. You see, Peter says, don't, don't think it's strange. In fact, he would go as far as to say, think it's strange if you're not. There's something wrong if you don't have some sort of friction with the world, some sort of, some sort of kickback from the world, some sort of persecution. Think it's strange if, if that's not happening, if the world loves you, you better stop for a moment and think it strange. Now I want to give you one last little thought. I know where I'm going on. One last thought. This is to me the part I want to leave with you to encourage you. Verse 39. These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. They obtained, all of them, a good report. That means they finished well. What do you want your final report to say? Think about it. If today were the day that God folded up this whole world like a napkin and said it's all over, and we were to stand before him and all the final remarks were written about our life, and the final report was given about your life, what would they say? Paul writes to Timothy, I have finished the course. Have you? Some haven't even begun. Some have gotten sidetracked along the way. We have a Christianity of convenience today, and people are leaving church because of the most silly, silliest things imaginable. I wonder what they will feel when they stand next to this crowd. 
God takes great delight in helping those who trust him through faith. Now, I want you to notice this. All of these received not the promise. All of these that you've just read about did all of this without the promise, without seeing the Savior, without knowing, all by faith, all believing. He hadn't come yet. All believing that he was going to come and then God was going to make good on his word and they did it all by faith. We have all the evidence you could ever want. Jesus has already come. He's died. He's already risen again. He already lived a life and performed many miracles and sent his apostles out to perform many miracles. And we have 2,000 years of Christian history to prove that he's alive and well and still at work today. And we still won't do a fraction of what these people did without ever seeing. Peter, I love, if you get a chance, Peter's letters are perfect for the time in which we live. Peter chapter, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 10, let me read it. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. You think about these prophets prophesying about this, longing to see it, and we have seen it. We've seen it. With the eye of faith, we've seen it. What about you? What's your excuse for not living a life of faith? We have none. But one thing is certain. Very soon, very soon, the final report will come. I want to obtain a good report. There aren't any shortcuts in that. There's only one way to do it, through 